And welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's March the 11th. The Bulldogs winning last night against the Louisiana, four to nothing, and three straight shutouts. 27 consecutive innings. The Bulldogs have shut out their opponent. Scoreless innings, first time since 1976 that has happened. And Charlie Winfield joins me. And uh, Charlie, man, I tell you what, Bulldogs won two of three this past weekend. Everybody was all up in arms when you lose the Saturday game against Kent State, a very good team, by the way. But then the response, coming back, throwing the no-hitter on Sunday. But the state pitching staff has been just as impressive in Tuesday and Wednesday night and a couple big midweek wins over the past couple days. And we've said this before, but I'll go back to the point again, the depth, the number of guys that have contributed. A lot of times you see a team going to run, you say, well, they haven't allowed a run in three games. And you start looking, well, who was the dominant starting pitcher that ran you deep into ball games? It hadn't been the case. I mean, nobody's gone more than, what, five, six innings. Got six innings on Sunday, five innings yesterday. But there's been an, just an army of guys coming across the mound and all of them pitching well. And, of course, we're brought to you by Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. They've got agents in every county in the state of Mississippi and Tremendous customer service. Their rates are very good as well. And so go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com and uh, talk with one of your agents in your local community, and they'll get you squared away on all your insurance needs. Charlie, this past week on Sunday Coffee, we were talking about how your state probably needed just to switch some things up. You brought it up. And we get to the ballpark, and we, and we did some things with our lineup that we actually talked about. One was you know giving – you know, Rowdy Jordan, kind of a day off or two at the top of the order, moving Scotty DeBrule up to the top. That's the thing we go back, and we'll talk to Chris Lamonis in our next segment about where he feels this team is right now. But that's one of the things we continue to kind of beat the drum of. Chris Lamonis is a coach that doesn't mind making moves, and he has made moves over the last week that's made this team better. Well, he certainly hasn't. We talk sometimes about the advantage for a player of being able to go to the ballpark and know that you're going to find yourself penciled in in a certain spot at a certain position. But there's also an advantage to guys knowing that if they perform, if they play well in practice, if they make plays, they can fight their way into a lineup that sitting on the bench isn't necessarily permanent. We've also seen him somehow do just an absolutely outstanding job of being able to maintain a connection with his players when he makes those changes, when he moves a guy up or down the lineup. We talked about the need for Rowdy Jordan perhaps to move out of that leadoff spot. Since he was moved to the second spot in the order, just one little tweak, he has gone two for three, one for two, and one for three. He scored six runs in three games. He's raised his batting average from below 200 to 241. Sometimes it just takes a little bit of a change. And for whatever reason, Chris Lamona seems to know how to push those buttons. And not just getting hits. He's walking. He only had two walks. That was the thing that stood out to me with Rowdy at the top of the order. It was almost like you kind of wonder about the mindset of beginning to press a little bit too much. And I'm not picking on Rowdy because you know he's going to hit. Rowdy Jordan has proven in his time at Mississippi State that he is going to hit. And you just you wonder about just getting back to that two spot where you don't feel like you have to set the tone as much, that you can take some pitches, work the count, get on base, and that's what he's doing because that's what this team needs. They, they need guys to get on base in front of Tanner Allen 
and Logan Tanner and Luke Hancock because those are the guys that can really destroy you with that two-run double. And the ability to manufacture runs. We talked about coming into the season how this was going to be different, how you're going to have to move some runners, do some things different to get runs home. Last night was a perfect example in the ball game against Louisiana, Lafayette. Can we say it now? Louisiana Lafayette? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> so, But you go back and you look, you score two runs on wild pitches, but that, again, you can say, well, you're lucky they threw wild pitches, but you put yourself in a position by getting to third base both those times, less with two outs. There's so many ways to score from there, and you scored two that were driven in by fly balls to center field. Manufacturing runs at the top of the order was a big difference in the ball game last night, and I think there's something about hitting second when Scotty DeBrule's getting on base in front of you, which has been the case a lot. I think it can sometimes force you to simplify a little bit. Now you're thinking about doing a job, moving a runner, and I think it takes out some of those distractions and this idea of, as you say, needing to set the tone and get on base. Yeah, Charlie, one of the things that stands out, we, we talk about guys like Landon Sims and all these guys on this pitching staff. We used so many this year, what, 22 pitchers this year. Preston Johnson was good last night. But one of the things that's hard to believe, when you got all these guys on the staff, Houston Harding has thrown 15 in the third of work. He was good once again last night. He's gone 15 in the third this season, 2-1 and one record, a 1.17 earn run average. Three runs, eight hits. 23 strikeouts and five walks and 15 in the third, and teams are batting 148 against him. He has been so solid in this midweek starting role for State, and we're going to have to have him, and we're going to have to have somebody in that midweek role who's good to build up some non-conference wins. And it's interesting, too, with those five walks, three of them came in the opening game. But one of the things that I think we've all done over the years is this idea of, well, he's just a midweek starter. No, look, midweek starters are important, and they are more important this year than ever. And it'll be interesting. Maybe we can talk to Chris Lamonis about that because I think this is going to be a year when there are going to be a lot of, we've said this 100 times, 16 and 14, 15 and 15 teams in the league. They're going to be fighting for seeds. And at some point you have to look for what is, how do you differentiate between those two? Who did you play in the non-conference? Who did you play in the midweek? And you've got to win those. And Houston Harding got you a win against Southern Miss and then comes back, gets you a win against Louisiana, and he looked dominant doing it both times. Jackson Fristo was good on Sunday. He was dominant in that game against Kent State. Yeah, boy, you'd take that every time out, wouldn't you? My goodness. Doesn't that guy have look like one of the next MSU greats? Hey, Preston Johnson. Preston Johnson has been really good in two stints, one against Southern Miss last week, one last night against Louisiana. I mean, he's gone four innings and ten strikeouts. I mean, the the number of strikeouts, 180 to 49 strikeout to walk ratio with his team, and teams only batting 188 against this pitching staff. And so, yeah, those are some questions for Chris Lamontis. And we'll talk to Chris Lamontis when we come back. We've got a packed show for you today. It's going to be Chris Lamontis. We'll talk to him about where he feels the team is. Then later in the show, we're going to talk to one of the all-time greats, Rafael Palmero, going to join us to talk about hitting. And so a great show for you today here on Out of Left Field. Of course, we're presented by Farm Bureau. Go with the home team at Farm Bureau. Back with more, you're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.
welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau, Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield, getting ready to talk to the head baseball coach at Mississippi State, Chris Lamonas. This interview brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage, Country Pleasing, located on Highway 49 in Florence, Country Meat Packers, producing unreal sausage, the original jalapeno cheddar. You know, one of the sausages that they only sell at Country Meat Packers in Florence is called Blueberry Maple. And I was talking to a couple of guys in, out in Bucky's and some of the, the gas stations in Texas. What they're doing is they're taking that blueberry maple, putting it on a stick, dipping it in pancake batter, and then frying it like a corn dog. And it's like a breakfast corn dog. That stuff is amazing. I'm going to try that this weekend. The jalapeno cheddar, it just all gets it keeps on getting better. Check it out at your local grocer. They're continuing to grow throughout the southeast and the country. That's country pleasing sausage. And now joining us, the head coach at Mississippi State, Chris Lamonis. And coach, you know, looking back at last night, you know, picking up a win against Louisiana Lafayette. You went to this past weekend against Kent State. They're going to have a, a good RPI. They're going to perform very well in the MAC. And, you know, in your first season, we lost only one non-conference game. And looking at the importance of non-conference games this year, do you think it's even more important this year to perform well in non-conference because everybody's going to be so good in the league and that's going to be a, a really a separating point for you in non-conference? Well, I do. I think it's um, I think it's more important for our league as a whole that we get more teams in at the end of the year. You know, that's one reason we didn't play a conference-only slate is we felt like we had to show ourselves against the rest of the country. And we open up in Texas and play the Big 12, and we had a good showing as a league. And, you know, we've had some really tough midweek contests here. You know, I'm, I'm proud of the way our guys have played because, you know, you're constantly building a resume. And Louisiana Lafayette's going to win a lot of games. Um, Southern Miss is going to win a lot of games. Kent State, Tulane, we feel like we had, we've had some big wins to this point of the season. It's really interesting. Last night is an example. We were calling the ball game, and you look out and you see a guy like Preston Johnson come in. And it, I was telling Bart, it seems like we're always saying, this guy is incredible. How have we not seen him more? And then all of a sudden you realize there just aren't enough innings to go around. How is it going managing a pitching staff with as much talent and as many electric arms as you've had? Well, we've played two games in the middle of the week and played a little more games right now. It's going to get harder as time goes on. And, you know, what people don't – we didn't have Preston Johnson the first 10 days, you know, the season. So, he wasn't available for us to pitch. So, that's kind of – you know, when we were out in Texas or coming back against Tulane, it would have been nice to have him because he is a uh, – you know, he's a strike thrower number one. And then it's 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 good stuff. And then it's – you know, I think his analytics are even better than what you see on the on the board. You know, he's got a really high spin rate. Uh, just a very tough guy to square up. Talking with Coach Chris Lamonas, and from that perspective, when you start talking about twenty two and twenty three guys, I mean, how do you even schedule a bullpen? I mean, I, that's one of the things I keep going back to and, and understanding from y'all's point of view. I mean, because you only have you know limited amount of hours that you have over a week. I mean, how are these guys? Is, is Scott Foxhall? Is he just you know saying, "Hey, we got some guys at eight o'clock in the morning and some guys at four o'clock in the afternoon," and those guys have to get work every day? Just the scheduling of that to me seems like it's be crazy. It's it's crazy right now. Even last week, Fox had to, you know, we were leaving some guys home. He he gets the Southern Miss game, you know, right before game time because he stayed and did some bullpens and. Uh, he's got his hands full, but it's a good problem to have. I mean, it, you'd rather have enough bullpens than not enough. And 
Um, but it's a, it's a busy day. I mean, you can imagine that the busiest time was the preseason. And these pitchers these days, they have more drills and arm care and, and everything else that they deal with. It, it's, it's a lot of work. It's just the worst for me is during BP, they're all standing in the outfield. There's too many of them as it is. So it's, uh, they get in the way, so we try to keep them busy. To go along with that, going into the, talking about fielding, and of course it's been much talked about since you got here about the utilization of the shift. How much of that early in the season is based on scouting report, and how much is that based on you know what your plan of attack is from a pitching standpoint? If are you playing pull side? Well, hey, I know I'm going to attack this guy a certain way because, or do you have the ability to, to get really detailed scouting reports early in the year? You know, it's a lot more on the hitter than it is our pitchers. We really don't. Every once in a while, we'll pitch to the shift, depending on the type of pitcher we have. But most of the time, it's on the hitter. And you'd just be surprised. I mean, the left-handed guy who has a tendency to pull, the chance of him hitting a ball on the ground is like 10% to the left side. So you just you have certain pieces in the game. And I think our guys have done, our analytics group has done a great job. I think we've gotten beat on the shift maybe once or twice, like we're plus like 14 right now as we keep up with it. So uh, balls that we take away. So it's, you know, you're playing the game and the pieces in the game in there, I think. And, and we do have pretty good, you know, if it's an older player, we have pretty good scouting reports on him. Just, just There's just so much more in the college game right now. If there's one thing we've observed about you and your coaching style, it's a willingness to, to move some pieces around. Bart and I talk all the time about, the move from Foscue from third to second base. We saw a new shortstop in the ball game this Sunday. We saw an incredible play running away from the infield. Saw some slick fielding here the past two days. Where do you assess Forsyth defensively? And then kind of where do you see your team overall defensively right now playing behind your pitchers? I think we've been really good the last three days. I mean, and that's when Lane jumped out there. Not that, you know, LJ was playing really good at third, too. So I, I got a tricky situation on my hand of, you know, trying to get enough guys in the ball game and, keep, and keeping them hot, you know. But Lane is a very, very special defender. And we knew that coming in. Um, and he's shown it, you know, here in the first couple days of playing. And, you know, Cam was just having some struggles there. Just sometimes it happens in the game. So being able to move him to third has helped out. And it's just hard to take his bat out of the lineup right now. I mean, Cam may be our – you know, from a power, a speed, a, you know, it's a right-handed bat, which is a big piece of what we need right now. Um, it's, it's been a good move for us. And I just think overall the defensive intensity has been, been very good. We just started out slow defensively, and um, I feel like we've kind of got it under control right now, knock on wood. Talking to head coach Chris Lamonis, flip the page, you look at the offensive side. Charlie and I were talking about the other night about, you know, Luke Hancock, a guy that is, is hitting for average right now. He's hitting with power. But the thing about Luke is when you start looking at his walks and the bats that he has, he's going deep into counts, it just gives the appearance he's just a locked-in hitter. He's just a guy that can just, just hit. Uh, what's your assessment of Luke Hancock here early in the year? You know, we used him a lot his freshman year for that reason. He batted at the bottom of the lineup because he would just – he had a lot of quality of bats. And then every bat's not about getting a hit. It's just about working the pitcher and keeping the lineup moving. And he has that ability to do it. And he's had – huge clutch hits this year and um we've been really happy with the way he's played it's, it's nice to have him back and fully healthy last year he was kind of gutting through some things so this year he's just healthy and playing and, and even when we can get him in there and catch him too but I think one of the better stats you see from us and I'm not exactly sure of it this morning but 
you know, as a coach, I always look at walks and HBPs compared to strikeouts. And a really good offense is usually close to positive or positive. And we're we're right on that line right now. And we have faced, to me, some of the you know best pitchers in the country at this point. So sometimes average is important or on-base percentage or slugging percentage. But a lot of times a good offense is they have the ability to, to take the freebies and, and work pitches. Some reasons you're seeing us win games late is we're working pitch counts and getting into bullpens early. And Luke's a prime example of that. One of the things that Bart and I talk about that really seems to separate college baseball programs is the ability to take players, get them involved early, and then develop them as they go. I was thinking the other night, we were talking about Tanner Allen early in his career, that he was a guy with a bat with nowhere to put him in the field, was kind of the -the on-the-street knock on Tanner Allen. And then we watched him make plays in the outfield, going to his right, going to his left, going back, coming in. And it looks like he is a guy who is really developing, not just as a hitter, but as an all-around player. I'm curious where you see his development as a baseball player over the past couple of years. And then who else perhaps you're seeing that is kind of really taken to the coaching and advancing their game? You know, T.A. is an unbelievable athlete. I mean, he may be one of the fastest guys on our team. People don't realize it. You know, you stick him at first, his you know first couple of years, and, and you don't get to see the athleticism then. And he didn't jump out there and take the outfield easy. It's taken some time, but he puts a lot of work and effort into it too. And I think you're seeing him just every day get a little bit more comfortable out there, get a little bit more uh, confident out there. I-, I think one of the other ones, and I don't know if everybody realizes it, but Logan Tanner, you know, he has a chance to be one of the better defensive catchers in the country. And he's he's working with cheese every day and, and, and so much the analytics side. You know, when we look back after a game and he got us 12, pitches that were balls and got pulled into the strike zone or you know a team like Lafayette you know um, as he throws down to second for the first time yesterday and you see their coach who you know I think they're one of the leaders in the country in stolen bases and we don't give up a stolen base last night you know I think he's a, a big reason and he's getting better every day and as a blocker you know he's really I think over the last couple of weeks he's you know blocking's always been probably the area he needed to improve on the best the most and He's really improving there. and You know, I just sometimes the catcher gets lost in there, but he is, every time we throw a shutout or every time we do something, he's, you know, those catchers are a big part of that. You know, it's interesting. Bart and I were talking during the game last night. We gave him a lot of credit this past weekend for framing balls down in the zone and, and his receiving. The thing we talked about last night, to echo your point, is how you don't even think about the blocks he's making because he seems to make them so effortlessly now. It, you know, it's one thing to get in front of it, but he always seems to not just block it, but kill it right around the plate. He does. It's and, and you know, in, in the game today, where y'all talk about all our power pitchers and power breaking balls, for some reason, there's a lot more wild pitches and pass balls, and and he's done a great job at that because we've, you know, we're not easy to catch. I mean, some nights we are, but there's some nights, you know, you you got those power breaking balls hitting the dirt, and it's hard. And he's done a. That's been, like I said, that's been the area him and Cheese have had to work the most on and trying to, to become a better blocker, and he's really put a lot of effort into it. You know, Coach, we see a lot of times in college sports, especially in college sports, it comes down sometimes to leadership and, you know, what goes on when you guys are not there. How's the leadership on this team? We've seen some teams have great athletes and great performers, but they kind of fold because they don't have guys that kind of hold themselves accountable. What, what do you feel about your team leadership right now? I think it's been pretty good, and I, I still think we're growing. I think in a lot of these teams, your ups and downs is where you 
where you find a lot of it. You know, Tanner's brought a lot of it. You know, being an older player, very vocal. One thing about Tanner, um, I mean, he comes every day with an energy and ready to play, and and he's been there. He's done it. And um, two of my older guys that I've really enjoyed and seen a lot is Riley Self and Spencer Price. You know, I haven't even got Spencer out here in the last week. But those guys do the same thing on the pitching staff. And you can imagine with that staff and the numbers and, and you know, all our kids want to play. And all our kids probably deserve to play. Um, trying to keep everything in check and keep everybody's egos in check and keep us all on the same page is, is, is a, probably the hardest part of the job this year. And having some guys like that has been, been huge. I mean, all three of those guys, how many ups and downs and how many years have they been in this program? They've just they've experienced a lot. Coach, before we let you go, you know, we, we, we've had some come-from-behind wins. And we were talking to Josh Lovelady a couple of weeks ago, and one of the big separators, of course, is, you know, how you perform in innings seven through nine. Why has your team been so good in innings seven through nine this year? Well, one, I think we have a really good bullpen, so it's hard to score on us. So we can kind of hold the game right there. But number two, like I mentioned it earlier, I, I think we do a good job of getting into somebody else's bullpen and being able to slow somebody down. And there's a lot to be said for a team that plays in a lot of close games. And, and I feel like that's what we've been in all year since day one. We have just been in close game after close game. And um, you get used to playing in those games. And, and there becomes a piece of the team that's in the dugout in the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning. Hey, man, we're still in this. And this is our type of game. And there's just not a lot of panic. And a lot of times you get a lot of panic in teams. Um, our, our team doesn't have a lot of panic in them. They're, they're pretty calm and cool. I wish they had a little more panic in the first through three innings. But they um, – you know, they've just been pretty pretty steady out there. Any idea right now what you want to look at as far as your rotation for the weekend, or is that something that's going to take place tomorrow or try to figure out <laughs> later on? <laughs> well, I have a meeting. I have a meeting at 10 o'clock today, but I think we're pretty close. So, But I'll, I'll have to let that one out a little <laughs> bit later. So I know that one's very anticipated here in Starfield. But we'll put it out there. But we're, you know, in our world, we have to develop guys and get guys, and, and we have to think of the big picture. Absolutely. You know? And so – um, this time of year, as much as we are building resume, what's going to be the best team that helps us, you know, play through a postseason that that gets us the the best opportunity? And you know, for me, I always think about you know who's pitching the one zero game in a regional. To me, is the most important ga- game of the year. You know, and I think that's a big piece to to any staff. And I know you got to get to a regional and you got to win game one, but great teams, man. I mean, even in our regional, we were fortunate to do it a couple years ago. Ethan Small's pitching in the 1-0 game. Those are those are the big games that usually decide some of those regionals is, is having, you know, really good guys out there and matched up the right way. Hey, Coach, we appreciate it. We know you've got a busy time right now. Good luck this weekend. All right, guys. Thank you. Y'all have a great day. Chris Lamonis, Bulldogs playing three this weekend against Eastern Michigan. It's always great to talk with the, the head coach at Mississippi State, Chris Lamonis, in this interview brought to you by Country Pleasing Sausage. Back with more, you're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. Time now for our guest line segment, brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, producing the finest farm-raised catfish in America and you can check them out at your local grocer and at some great restaurants around the southeast. And one of those is Casey Jones Village in Jackson, Tennessee, the old country store. They've got the buffet. 
They've got anything you can possibly want. And anytime I'm going through Jackson, Tennessee, that's the place that I go without doubt. 56 Casey Jones Lane in Jackson. And if you're in North Mississippi and sometimes on a Friday night, you're like, you know what, I get a, I got a hankering for some catfish. Jackson, Tennessee is not that far. Sometimes you want to make that trek to have the conversation with the friends in the car. Head on up to Jackson, Tennessee to Casey Jones Village, the old country store. Brooke Shaw and Son, they'll get you taken care of with the best farm-raised catfish in America from Heartland Catfish. Now let's go to the phones where one of the all-time greats at Mississippi State and in baseball in general joins us, Rafael Palmero. Wanted to talk a little bit about hitting with Rafael. And, Rafael, appreciate you joining us this morning. Hey, thanks for having me on. Rafael, looking back and growing up in Miami, Florida, and then ending up in Starkville, Mississippi, and we talked to a lot of different guys. We actually talked to one of your teammates, Trenton Torsia, last year, and then we talked to Gene Morgan a couple of weeks ago, and we were – like to ask the same question. I mean, how did you end up from Miami, Florida, to Starkville, Mississippi? Well, a big reason is actually – or was Trenton Torsia, who ended up being my roommate. But we both got recruited at the same time. He was out of South Southridge, which is South Miami. We were both recruited by Mississippi State, and we were also being recruited by Miami at the time. So in, in 1982, I believe in 81, Miami had won the national championship, and Ron Frazier was the, the head coach, and he had brought us in just to talk about you know the program, and he was recruiting us heavily. But he uh, basically told me, I'm not sure what he told Trent, but he basically told me that freshmen don't play at Miami and that I was going to be redshirted. And so... Yeah, I'm assuming that he said the same thing to Trent because Trent was one of the best, if not the best pitcher coming out of Miami. But we we came up to Mississippi State on our recruiting trip. He and I came up together, and uh, it was an Ole Miss weekend series. And I could not believe what I what I was, was witnessing the amount of people and the left field lounge and the cooking and the excitement. And so it was for us. It was you know it was hard because we didn't want to leave Miami. You know, every kid that comes out of Miami wants to go to the University of Miami, especially, you know, back then they just won a national championship. But I just, when I, when we came back home, it was like, it was, we were so impressed with Mississippi State. I'd have to say that three of the reasons was, first of all, Miami wasn't going to allow us to play our freshman year. Second of all, what we had seen at Mississippi State was unbelievable. And we didn't want to admit, uh, miss that. And thirdly, you know, Trent and Torsha and myself, decided that we were going to make the decision together. So, we, you know, what we weren't going to go separately. And so we just kind of decided after about a week of waiting around, we say, hey, let's, let's just get the heck out of Miami. Let's go up to Mississippi State and, and let's not miss out on that atmosphere. So, And also Coach Pope gave us a chance to play. He said, you know, if you guys earn it, uh, you'll get a chance to play as freshmen. So all that combined, you know, it was, it was just hard to turn down. And this was all your senior year. That's what's kind of crazy about the morphing of, of collegiate recruiting. All these guys now are committing in eighth grade, ninth grade, and they're 14, 15 years old. I mean, you guys were you know, 18 years old making that decision. It's amazing how college recruiting has changed since that time. Well, and the way I see it is, you know, you can you can commit early as a 14-year-old or, or a 15-year-old as a, as a sophomore or, or a freshman, but it doesn't really matter because a commit – doesn't mean anything whether a team you know wants you to come up there as a sophomore it doesn't really matter because you know you have to sign a letter of intent 
we didn't have any of that stuff back then. So for us, I mean, it, I didn't even think about college until my senior year and I had no idea where I was going. I mean, I was recruited by Miami and, and Mississippi state and a couple of others. I think Oklahoma also came in and, and, and maybe even Florida state, but uh, it, it's just hard to recruit a 14 or a 15 year old when you don't know what they're going to turn out to be as an 18 year old. And there's plenty of, of uh, examples just being around here in this area in Dallas, watching my, my boys grow up. There are a lot of 14 and 15 year old kids that were unbelievable as 14 and 15 year olds. By the time they got to being a senior in, in high school, they were not D1 athletes. And so, I mean, I know that that's the way the game is today because everyone wants to make sure that they've got the best recruits coming in early. But uh, it's just like you said, it's different. It's different these days. My kids growing up here, you know, in the past 10 years are familiar with Dak Prescott and his experience at Mississippi State and Jake Mangum and his experience here. Two guys who basically couldn't walk through town without having people talk to them, without wanting to reach out to them. I think back to the time that you were here and very similar. I mean, you guys were, that entire team was just so popular. You talked about wanting to come to Mississippi State and enjoying the atmosphere. Was there ever a time where you just felt like you needed to get away or needed to escape? No. I mean, that was, I think the the thing that made it special for me was just the people the people that, that were there back then and still are there today. I mean, I still, when I go back, I still run into people that, you know, that were there in 80, in the mid eighties. And so they're just wonderful people. And they, they loved our players and our team, you know, our, the whole thing. I mean, you see what it's grown into. It's just, it's just an unbelievable place. But to me, it was just the people that were in love with our players. And, you know, to this day, they still embrace me. And it's the one it's my one safe space. You know, I can always go back and people are going to embrace me and they're going to love me. I love going back. I love that place, man. Talking with Rafael Palmero. Rafael, to be honest with you, I mean, I'll say it right now. I mean, I was that, I was that nine-year-old kid in 1985. I mean, I look at that group and, you know, of, of you and all those guys that played on those teams, 82, 83, 84. I mean, that was kind of one of the most influential uh, moments of my life to kind of fall in love with Mississippi State baseball. And, you know, I was talking to Coach Polk before I came over here, and we talked about two things. One is, is we carried on a conversation yesterday about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin. So you can imagine how phenomenal that conversation was. But also the thing he talked about was, you know, when Rafael came to Mississippi State, I told guys to stay away from him, and the only thing you tell Rafael Palmero is, boy, just keep on doing it. And he says, I never wanted to change his swing at all. Where did you develop that pure swing? Was it a little league coach? Was it in the backyard? Was it just at the ballpark was when you were a high school you know, sophomore? When did you begin to develop what that pure swing was? Well, it was my dad who actually helped me with it. He was the one that introduced me to baseball at a, at a young age. I think I started playing about eight years old, maybe eight or nine years old. And, uh, you know, my dad played baseball in Cuba at an, at, a, at the amateur level. So he really didn't have a lot of technique or, you know, there, there wasn't a lot of mumbo jumbo uh, in his in his teachings. So for me, it was very simple. He kept it real, you know, as, as simple as possible. And so I just worked on it a lot. I, I took a lot of swings in the backyard. Uh, he and I and my, my other two brothers were always practicing. We always went to practice after my dad got home from work. And so I just, you know, in a simple way, I just learned how to hit. And I just developed it as I got older and older. And then when I got into high school, 
I started as a as a 10th grader and I played three four years and I did well and then I went to Mississippi State and you know I I didn't miss a beat I kept it simple I know that there were coaches there that were that were you know the batting practice coach and the hitting coach and they never said anything to me about hitting uh, and it's true you know Coach Folk told them to just back off and I didn't think about very many things other than just trying to get a level swing on the ball and try to square things up and not worry about launch angle or or bat speed or anything like that. To me, it was just real simple. Just see the ball and hit it. And uh, I had success, and I, I was lucky, I guess. Do you feel like with young hitters today, we're putting in too many thoughts into their heads, this idea of launch angle and all these things and kind of losing sight of having a good pure swing and seeing it and hitting it? Absolutely. There's so much going on now with these new techniques and, and a lot of the, the batting coaches that are out there, you know, for a 12 year old or, or even somebody that's in high school, you want to keep, keep it simple. Now you want to make sure that their mechanics are, are sound, somewhat sound, you, you know, but if you have a, a sound swing, there's nothing more that you need to do other than just put a good solid level swing on the ball and and not worry so much about where your elbow is or, or if you, you know, if you need the launch. I mean, I don't understand any of that stuff. Uh, I mean, I see it and I, I know what they're trying to get to. But when you when you have a kid that's, you know, 12, 14, 16 years old, thinking about 32 different things, it's just not going to work. Uh, I'm sorry. It's just not going to work. Maybe when you get older and you're, you know, in the minor leagues or even for, for guys in, in at the big league level, you can break it down and, and uh, you know, and worry about all the things. But, I mean, I even when I was in the big leagues, I didn't even think about all that stuff. I just I kept with my simple approach, and I was able to succeed at it. Talking with Rafael Palmero. Yeah, Rafael, along those, along those lines, and Charlie and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about, you know, left on left and, you know, just simple things and how that, there seems to be more trouble for a left-handed hitter against a left-handed pitcher than a right-handed pitcher, right-handed hitter. When you were playing, how much of it was about scout? How much of it was about you know learning what a guy was throwing, or was it just simple see the ball, hit the ball? It was for me. It was like that because you know back then, well, at least when I was in high school and in college, we didn't really have you know scouting reports, and and I mean we did, but not. It was very simplistic. We only had, you know, hey, velocity is 88 to 92. He's got a curveball and a changeup. We didn't have tendencies. You know, we didn't have any of that stuff, which to me, that's that's fine. We, we, I wanted to keep it simple anyway. I, I always hit off the fastball. I always anticipated fastball, and I always anticipated strike. But against the lefty, I wasn't trying to pull the ball. I never tried to pull a ball against the lefty because, you know, it, I would be vulnerable to the curveball or the changeup. So to me, I looked fastball out over the plate and I was trying to hit the ball hard to left center field I was trying to drive the ball out that way now if the guy was throwing me inside I would uh, I would give him those pitches but anytime you throw anything out over the plate middle middle out I was going to crush the ball the other way and that also kept me back a little bit because I was trying to see the ball deeper in the zone to keep me on the breaking ball now there were times when I, when I pulled the ball accidentally but I wasn't trying to it just happened naturally because maybe the guy left the ball middle end but I always, I always tried to hit the ball the other way on a fastball against the lefty. And um, I had success against lefties even at the big league level. 1984, one of the great offensive seasons in baseball history, in college baseball history, you win the triple crown, comes right down to the end of the season. I'm curious, 
as that season progressed and you got towards the end of the year, was that something that people talked about? Was it something you felt any pressure about? And how did winning the Triple Crown or going through the chase for that impact your ability to handle distractions and outside pressure later? Well, I was never thinking about the Triple Crown. I was never thinking about trying to outdo my teammate, Will Clark. You know, we both had great seasons, and I know that it came down to the very last at bat for both of us in that regional at home against New Orleans. But for me, and I know if I think for him as well, we were just trying to win games. We were trying to get to the World Series. You know, 1983, we got beat by Texas down in in Austin at that regional, and we were trying to get to the World Series. So for us, we didn't care about our stats. We were just trying to get our team to the College World Series to try to win a national championship. You know, it just happened that I hit a home run on my last at bat, and he didn't, but his season was as good as mine. And then he comes back in 85 and he wins the Golden Spikes Award. So I never thought about the Triple Crown. I never put any pressure on myself. I never felt pressure in college. For us, it was just about winning and and trying to just destroy the opponent. And when we lost the game, we took it personally. And we we didn't like losing. And, uh, you know, those, those, those three years that we had there with those three teams, I felt that we had we could have won back-to-back-to-back national championships. That's how good our teams were and how close we were. And then, obviously, in 85, we, you know, we, got, we got beat in, in the College World Series. But I never felt pressure. I never felt pressure going into the, my junior year as far as the draft uh, or anything like that. For us, it was just we're going to have fun. I mean, those three seasons were a lot of fun for us. And um, just try to win big. Rafael, we talked to Gene Morgan three weeks ago. And we asked him the question about the line drive, and he tried to downplay it. He said, hey, I was, I was fine. You know, I, I went out there and continued to pitch. When you look back at 1985, do you think that one play, do you think that's the play that, that cost you the national championship? Well, I don't know if that's the one play, but I know that it changed the whole trajectory of, our, of what we were doing. And, and I know, he may say that it didn't affect him, but it's not possible because – he was cruising. He was dealing that game. And then after that after that pitch, after he got hit, it wasn't the same. Now, the momentum switched to Texas, and they scored a whole bunch of runs. And I know, you know, looking back on that, I'm sure even Coach Polk would say, you know, he made a mistake by leaving Gene in the game. But, you know, we could have come back the next day and, and, and beat Miami. You know, we had, we had Miami down in the bottom of the ninth inning, and we gave up the two-run home run. That could have put us back in the national championship game, and I think I still think we could have won it uh, if we'd have gotten in that game. So I don't know that that one play decided us winning or losing because we had a chance to, to come back and win the next day. So, but it did affect that game for sure. One of the things that's interesting about you and a number of other former Mississippi State players is the degree to which you still seem to be fans. You know, a lot of times people think, well, he went to the school and that's the last you hear of him, but. I mean, you're visible around Mississippi State. I'm wondering, how much do you get to watch Mississippi State play baseball, football? How much do you get to keep up with it? Everything. I watch everything that's on TV. I watch, you know, the, the girls' softball. There's two girls on the team now that are, you know, the new Thunder and Lightning. They're, they're doing tremendous things. They're putting our, our softball program on the national map, obviously with the football program. I watch every game that I can. I come back to on campus to be a part of all that stuff, but – I'm I'm a fan. I love Mississippi State. I root for all our teams. 
Uh, I love our baseball program. I love where we are with our baseball program. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't miss any of it. Well, I just want you to know that if you're watching a baseball broadcast and Bart Gregory says anything dumb, please feel free to reach out and uh, and, and let him hear <laughs> well, you, from you. That, that's every you game. Oh, so so I'm okay doing that then? Because I, I've, heard you, I've heard you say some things in the past. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. I'm just kidding. At Bart Gregory, you can hit him on Twitter. Uh, people I'm are not going to. Oh no, people are people are not afraid to do that, Raphael. Hey, before we let you go, you know, one of the things that's been talked about, especially in your area right now and our area as well, is you know Dak Prescott, you know, signing a huge contract right now to you know, four year deal to be with the Dallas Cowboys, and of course everybody and their brothers like, man, I hope Mississippi State's got him on speed dial, and, and it's kind of funny in, in its way, but you know, you look at professional athletes, a lot of times they feel like, hey, that the school may owe them something and they really never have a chance to, to give back. You did. Uh, you gave back. And with an indoor complex, the Palmero Center, why did you do that? Well, I just felt it was important for me to give back. You know, uh, everything that the that the school did for me, uh, giving me the opportunity to, to go to school there and experience the years that I experienced there. I wanted to give back also to the baseball program and to Coach Polk. Uh, for giving me that opportunity and so yeah I was my wife and I were thrilled and and honored that we were able to to help out in a small way and I'm sure that with Dak I mean he I'm sure that he's he's anxious and willing to give back to to our school as well and I gotta tell you this because Dak is not just an unbelievable football player but he's an unbelievable person and we all love him here in in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and the fans and the media, they were so upset that it took this long for the Cowboys to sign probably not, if not the best quarterback, one of the best quarterbacks in the NFL, but everyone is so excited right now uh, that he's back and uh, hopefully get a, you know get the Cowboys back to the Super Bowl because I know that that's what he wants. And so I'm happy for him, and, and uh, I'm sure that the, the Mississippi State uh, folks are, are happy as well. Rafael, hey, we appreciate you. It's always good to talk with you. Hey, look forward to seeing you the next time you're on campus. We'll be back soon. We'll be back there in the next few weeks. Thanks for having me on. Hey, we appreciate that. Thank you so much. And that's Rafael Palmero in that conversation brought to you by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, the finest U.S. farm-raised catfish around. Check them out at your local grocer. Got the, the blue and the black label, Heartland Catfish. And once again, go up to the Old Country Store in Jackson, Tennessee, Brookshaw and Sons. In the Casey Jones Village, and they've got that great Heartland Catfish on the buffet. It's on the menu. And once again, the segment brought to you by Heartland Catfish. We'll come back with a final word here on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back. Final segment of Out of Left Field presented by Farm Bureau. That was good stuff. Man, great to talk to Chris Lamonis and Rafael Palmero. Rafael is a guy, you, know, you brought it up, he's just around more. And this is kind of his safe place. I mean, he loves the people here. The people here love him. And it is so good to see he and Lynn and the kids and everybody coming back and being engaged in the program. One of the things that really jumped out to me talking to Raphael just then was how authentic he was and how sincere he was in talking about being here in Starkville. 
And, you know, look, we live here for a reason and we like it, but it is really cool to see guys who played here who had the success that he had still have that level of attachment to our school. All right, this weekend, three-game series, we play Eastern Michigan. Scott Weatherby, the athletic director, of course, spent a number of years as the associate athletic director here in Starkville for Scott Strickland. Then John Cohen became the athletic director at Eastern Michigan. He wanted to bring his team down and play three games against State. Here's the thing, Charlie. You look back and you look at the three weekends when you played you know, out in Arlington, then you played Tulane, then last week you know, Kent State coming in here is going to really build your RPI up. This is a team in Mississippi State. You're kind of playing against yourself this weekend, and that's not to take anything away from Eastern Michigan. But this is a team that can continue to fine-tune and get ready for SEC play. That begins next week. And so you just try to keep that momentum going with this weekend. It's not okay to take anything away from Eastern Michigan. Is that what you're telling me? That's exactly what I'm saying. All right. Well, I'm going to take something away from them. Uh, It's probably going to be some of the more favorable matchups, shall we say that we've seen this year, the key is going to be, as you say, though, about us. If we are sitting here on Sunday morning talking about how we didn't hit well, I'm not going to come in here and talk about the dominant pitching from Eastern Michigan. I'm going to talk about how we didn't have a good approach. I don't think that's going to be the case. I think uh, right now, look, that SEC schedule is getting large in the windshield, man. It is. It's right on top of us. And so I think it's – going to be all about getting yourself in position for next week. Chris Lamont has brought up some good things. Logan Tanner has been so good behind the plate. He's been one of the reasons this pitching staff has been so good this season. You look at the plate, that's an offense that continues to need to get better as you get into SEC play next weekend. And so, Charlie, the changes in the field have made a, a good difference. Boy, Cameron, Forsyth. Cameron James over at third has got a good arm. He's made some nice plays at third. Man, Forsyth. He looks Big smooth time. out there. Big time. Very smooth. And I talked to Coach Polk about the play that Forsyth made, and he was like, you know, that was as good a catch as I've ever seen, simply because of how he had to go back and pretty much cradle the ball, you know, over his glove side. That's what made that catch so tough to preserve the no-hitter. And so, yeah, that, that was a lot of fun on Sunday. You know, I've been involved in some cool stuff. I was doing a radio broadcast the day that Ricky Bowen was an out-of-way. And I know you're playing Kent State. Kent State's not a bad ball club at all. And they're a good offensive team. They can swing it. And then to do what you did and to have kind of the, the momentum, it took some big plays in the field. McGowan made a diving catch in left field. Pimentel made a, just an unreal play on a ball that hit the first base bag. He was playing first. He speared it, got the out. But then the best one was the last one, the Forsyth play going in the outfield, full sprint going away from the infield. That was big time. That was a lot of fun, though. That was a lot of fun. For a state guy, I know you're a state guy too, that, that was pretty cool. Oh, and the challenge of just thinking, we can't say it, but we have to <laughs> communicate the message. That was the uh, that was interesting because I was not about to talk about a no-hitter. No, no. Only base runners are on via the walk or the error. you got to tell the story without telling the story. Hey, today was fun. I enjoyed that. Good conversations with Chris Lamonis and Rafael Palmero. Our thanks to our sponsors once again. Farm Bureau, go with the home team. Check them out at favorites.com. Country Pleasing Sausage. And then Heartland Catfish. Heartland producing the finest American-raised catfish anywhere around. And once again, check them out at the Old Country Store in Jackson, Tennessee. Brooks Shaw and Son. The Country Store, CaseyJones.com. And uh, it was a lot of fun today. 
here on Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.